hear the word of Almighty God. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. He gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with their enemies in the gate. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you gave men of old wisdom and discernment. And we thank you that more than that, your spirit led them along and breathed into them that they might write your word down. And so, Lord, we thank you for this living, breathing word from you. And we ask that you would use it in us today. That through it, you would give us wisdom as well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come back to Psalm 127, to the beginning of it. And uh, I, I said last week, although this psalm has that big focus on children, nonetheless, it has something to say to everyone. And the beginning of it makes that, I think, rather clear. And if we understand what's going on in the beginning appropriately, uh, then we can also consider the end of it in terms of each of our situations and not misunderstand the end of it to some of your situations. And so let's consider the beginning of it. As we look at the whole thing, we see that there are three major categories, essential areas of life that are put in front of us by Solomon. They're areas of life that I think most unbelievers would agree with the believer are major important areas of life. We have work, we have security, and we have family. But of course, Solomon wants to put before us his conclusion and assessment regarding how we ought to view work, security, and family. And it isn't what the world views on any of these points. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon unpacks that a little more richly. He spends time showing us how long and how hard he thought like the world. And, and what it resulted in. And I believe Psalm 127 uh, is Solomon giving us a short version of Ecclesiastes. But focusing on the heavenly viewpoint. Ecclesiastes focuses on the earthly viewpoint and gives us all these little hints at the heavenly one. At the solution. But Psalm 127, Solomon says, let me just talk about the the heavenly viewpoint. So as we look at these three categories, work, you know, think about the, how the world views work. 
Some in the world view it as a bad thing. It's an unfortunate reality. It's something to be avoided. It's a burden. Maybe sometimes you feel that way too. There's a reason for that. Because work was cursed in the fall. And so it does become a burden to you, even though you were created to work for the glory of God. But why would it be a burden, especially for the unbeliever? Because they don't see the purpose of their work. And so the the world views work as the way to get ahead. The way to gain peace. If I work hard enough, I'll make the money for all the things I want. If I work hard enough, if I pull myself up by my shoelaces, if I get ahead, then I can just... I think Walt actually... I already had this point in my sermon yesterday, but Walt yesterday talked a little about about just that idea of retirement. Oh, now I can sit back and rest on what I've done. Well, if you're a Christian, you can still enjoy retirement. That's okay. Uh, But as the non-Christian, that's what you're doing it for. To get ahead or to get to the rest. Solomon's going to say in Ecclesiastes, you won't find it no matter how hard you work. But we'll come back to that in a moment. The world views work in terms of being a success and getting ahead and gaining what you want. And Solomon says here about work, the spiritual reality, God builds the house or there is no success. Even for the unbeliever, the unbeliever who has temporary success, it's because God ordained it. Think about that. When you get ahead because you've been working so hard, God ordained it. And he gave you the success. That's the heavenly perspective, the spiritual reality. Uh, Same thing we could do with security. Security. The world says, plan ahead. Lock your doors, which is a good thing to do. I'm not saying the world's stupid on all these points. It's okay to lock your doors at night. It's okay to set a security system on your house. That's okay. It's okay to own a gun and have it hidden away somewhere for safety if that makes you feel safer. Uh, but, but that's all the world has, right? Your security rests on you. And you do these things, and you'll be safe. Maybe it's not safe at night. Maybe it's, uh, again, back to that concept of retirement, old age. You lay up wealth so that you can have a security down the road. Or the government can do it for you with social security. And then you'll be fine, of course. You'll have no wants. In old age. We, we see how this doesn't work, don't we? Social security sounded great. It, it doesn't quite give you the ease you want in old age. <coughs> That's the, the world's view of security. The spiritual reality, Solomon says, God gives you security. God keeps you safe or you will never be safe. 
And then the family, and of course that was our focus last week. The world says, you plan it out. You decide what you want it to be. You figure that out and you pursue it. You can have your family, whatever family, on your time and on on, uh, your standards. Or the world says, family is a burden and a drain. And the spiritual reality that Solomon gives us (coughs) is that God gives family. It's a gift on his timing. And it is a blessing and honor and part of your security. Part of your security. You have three household incomes to cover you in the future. Isn't that nice? (laughs) You You have a strong young back, Trish, to take care of you in the future. Right? Uh, This is a blessing, isn't it? It's God's security system for your older, older age. I like older. Paul and Titus, notice, he doesn't say old. He says older. That's good. Your security for older age, God will provide. And if he hasn't provided the children to be that security system, he's still the one in control of your security in older age. The spiritual reality that Solomon is putting before us is that our lives are either worthwhile or futile. A chaff in the wind. Vanity. And that our lives are either worthwhile or that vanity, depending on God, not on ourselves. We struggle with that. But that's what God is saying here. What does that mean to our specific situations in life? Let's start with the unbeliever. And... I mean, I know you all here, but I don't know who's on the other side of the live stream ever. And, uh, and the heart can be incredibly deceitful. Some may have even made profession of faith long ago and never truly believed in Christ. So here's the application if you are an unbeliever here this morning. The, the application of the unbeliever from Psalm 127 is that without God... Everything in your life is vain. Without God, apart from God, everything in your life is vain. Vain, that that word that Solomon really likes. It's actually a different word than he uses in Ecclesiastes, but it has the same basic contextual point behind it. And that is that idea of uh, something you grasp at, but it's not there. Right? You can grasp at the wind. You can never catch hold of the wind. Vanity. Something that doesn't last. You think you have it. But it's going to be gone tomorrow. And here today, gone tomorrow, stresses us out. It's not a secure feeling. And that's what Solomon is saying here. It's what he says in Ecclesiastes as well. We, we read uh, part of it with Bill this morning, but let me just read a few verses from chapters 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes. We read there, Solomon write, What profit has a man from all his labor under the sun? 
One generation passes away and another comes. There's a man whose labor is with wisdom. See, we're not talking about the fool. There's a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. And as we read with Bill, who may be a fool and squander everything you worked hard for. You may be wise. You may have knowledge. You may have great skill with your hands. You may use all of those day by day. You may get up early and strive until late with your skillful hands and your smart mind. And the best case scenario, it profits you a little bit in this life. And then you die and a fool squanders it. If the government after taxes lets them have any of it at all. Does that feel like a meaningful life? And then you take a hundred years. We read this with Bill as well in Ecclesiastes 2. hundred years later, guess what? The fool is just as likely to be remembered as the wise man. wonder how many you can take any era in history for this by the way how many wise maybe even godly men and women in germany tried to stop the things that were happening before that war started but we don't remember their names but we remember the fool isn't that the case Solomon is telling us that if you do not have God without God, everything in your life is vain. Even if you think you have it today, it's gone tomorrow, including potentially your reputation. You lay up that nest egg for your old age, but all it takes is one embezzler, gone. One economy crashing, and you're left with a piece of paper and a number on it that means nothing. Or uh, you, you labored hard and you laid all that money up, but inflation kept... And, and now your money's not worth what it was. Sorry, you need to work another 10 years before you can think of retiring. We, we all know that person, right? In the, the past few years who was planning on retirement. And now the plan is for 10 years from now, Maybe. Without God, nothing in your life is purposeful. Everything is in vain. It'll slip away. But more importantly than that, the New Testament, the Old Testament as well, but I'm going to use the New Testament here, makes it clear that without God, not only is this life vain, but if you do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you will spend eternity in a lake of fire, hell, where God's wrath is poured out on all those who lived for themselves, who, as Paul says in Second Thessalonians 1, do not know God, nor obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What good is all the work you do in this life, laying up, building a bigger silo for your rich harvest, If tonight, O fool, you die 
And because you did not love the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, you spend eternity in hell. At some point during that eternity, you may not even remember the pleasures you had here. Vanity. That's what Psalm 127 has to say to the unbeliever. But here's what it has to say to you who are believers. And what it promises if you're an unbeliever who turns to the Lord Jesus today. It says that in Christ, nothing in your life is in vain. Not just that there's the possibility that in Christ your life will have meaning. Not just that Jesus plus some hard work will gain you security or might gain you purpose. But rather that in Christ, nothing in your life is vanity. Astonishing. Including the worst things that happen in your life. They too are not in vain if you are in Christ. Astonishing. But that's Solomon's point. You see, unless the Lord builds the house. But what if the Lord builds the house? Then it's not in vain to labor in it. Unless the Lord guards the city. But if the Lord guards the city, who can stand against it? Unless the Lord does these things, unless he gives sleep, unless he bestows children. But if he gives sleep and if he bestows children, none of this is in vain. I want to think about this this contrast in terms of especially verse 2 here. Verse 2. And I I don't love the the New King James translation here. You see a couple of moments where it's in italics. I, I like the first one. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. But then I'm not sure I, I really love the, he, the translation from the Hebrew they do in the end there. It's not that through those bread of sorrows he gives his beloved sleep. That's what for so might indicate. But that's not what Solomon's doing. He's giving you a contrast. Life of you doing versus life of God working. Life of you doing, it's vain. You get up early, you stay up late. What is Solomon talking about? He's not just talking about your preferences. Oh, I'm a, I'm a morning person. Oh, I'm a night owl. Uh, oh, I, I like staying up at night and watching TV. Oh, I like getting up early and taking a cool walk before it's hot. Solomon's not saying that. He's saying that you, without Christ, you, if you're a smart wise, skilled person without Christ, you can get up at the crack of dawn and work until the sun is set. And all you get for it is the bread of sorrows. You work and you work and you strive and you try and you get the bread of sorrows. But he's contrasting it then. 
he says, but he gives his beloved sleep. You strive and you strive for the bread of sorrows. You go to bed then. How do you go to bed then? Worried about tomorrow and more striving. But he gives his beloved sleep. Notice that verse that we read with Bill earlier in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 23. He's talking about the person who strives in his heart under the sun, which is Ecclesiastes' way of saying without Christ, just here below. And what does he say of that man? For all his days are sorrowful, the bread of sorrows, sorrowful, and his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart has no rest. It's vanity. Parallel text. It's helping us understand what it means to eat the bread of sorrows. Even in the night, you have no rest. But he gives his beloved sleep. I want, to, want you to think about sleep in two ways here in Solomon, because I, I think I, I think that's appropriate. First First, it's the idea of rest that lasts. Rest that lasts. Holly and I were laughing about this last week. That Solomon writes, he gives his beloved sleep. By the way, children are a heritage from the Lord. And with children, bye-bye sleep. It doesn't feel like that should be a logical progression of inspired thought, does it? But it's more than just that sleep during the night. He's talking about rest that isn't vain, that survives, that lasts. And as I was praying about that thought this last week, by chance... By God's providence. I turned on an old lecture from my, my mentor, Cornell Venema. Venema is a, a, a great theologian, and he's well known for his study of eschatology, end times. And I threw on an old lecture of his that I hadn't listened to in a while. I didn't even know which of the lectures it was going to be when I hit play. It was on what happens to the believer at death. And he was talking about, as, as the catechism uh, says, you know, the soul of the believer is immediately with Christ in glory. Conscious? Jesus tells us that. Today you will be with me in paradise. But what happens to the body of the believer, separated from that soul that is in paradise? Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, they sleep. Their body is resting in the grave until the resurrection. Now, we say, we know that there are worms. And that doesn't seem like rest to us. But Paul is saying, no, because there's a resurrection. And even our bodies are not ignored by the resurrection, the redemption that Christ brings. We're waiting for that. Did we sing in one of our songs, the battle is not done. (laughs) But it's going to be. 
And it's going to be when King Jesus raises our bodies that had rotted out of the grave, incorruptible. And on that day, will we say, what a mess our bodies were all this time. No, our souls reunited to glorified bodies will say, what a great rest that was. My disease is gone that I had when I went into that grave. My brokenness, my soreness, gone. That was a good rest for my body as my soul was in paradise. And now I'm ready for eternity of rest in Christ. Hebrews 4, which we repeated back to Bill earlier in our confession of the commandments speaks of an eternal rest that because Jesus completed the work of redemption there is a sabbatismos a sabbath rest waiting for the people of God it's a sabbath that doesn't end a rest that will never be taken away from you a new day when Christ returns when you will never have to go back to the thorns and the thistles and the sweat of your brow. Solomon, I am convinced, is speaking in part about that. You can eat the bread of sorrows till you die and you rot in the grave and your soul is in hell, but God gives his beloved real sleep, real rest, eternal peace, surpassing all understanding. And that promise, that future reality for us, guards our hearts and our minds today in Christ Jesus our Lord, so that secondly, he really does give you a deep rest in this life, doesn't he? Not every night the same, not all of you the same. But think of how David Murray challenges this. In his book Reset, David Murray asks us, What sermon do you preach when you sleep? If the world looked on and could read your mind and know the tensions of your heart as you put your head on that pillow, what sermon would they hear? Let me share what Murray Murray kind of imagines as our, if we were really honest our answer would have to sometimes be like this sure I believe God is sovereign but he needs all the help I can give him if I don't do the work who will although Christ has promised to build his church who's doing the night shift is that that the sermon your view of rest at night preaches Beloved, that is the sermon of one who gets up early and stays up late pursuing the bread of sorrow. Thinking that purpose is found in you. And rest can only be obtained if you do your work hard enough. This isn't a sermon, by the way, for laziness. But how do you do your work? If you're doing it unto the Lord... You can put your head down on the pillow and say, Lord, I've done a sad job today. 
I'll try to do a slightly better job tomorrow. And while I'm asleep, you are in control. You're in control 24-7. You don't need me. You don't need me to obsess about whether my child will keep breathing through the whole night. You're in charge. You don't need me to know whether uh, bad things are happening out in our society. They are. And people are probably being hurt right now. You don't need me to know all of that. I can rest knowing you are sovereign. That's the sermon we ought to be preaching with our sleep. And it's not the one many of us preach consistently. I don't sleep well. Shame on me. That, that's a true confession. What sermon do we preach in our sleep? Solomon is saying here, God gives his beloved that rest, that knowing that he is in control, that he is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And therefore, you, you should be able in your sleep to say to your stress, be gone. Maybe we need to pray that prayer that children used to get taught, and I forget how it starts. But it ends like this. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's a sermon. That's a sermon that preaches. It's a sermon of Psalm 127. If I die, okay, take my soul. That's rest. Rest from the the true giver. If you are in Christ, nothing in your life is in vain. Well, well, we, we can think about that in terms of sleep, but the psalm also goes on to talk about children as we looked at last week. And it talks about them as a blessing from God. And here's a point that could be very sore for many. If, if Solomon is saying with Psalm 127, if his central point is, in Christ, nothing in your life is in vain, why would he then turn and insult 50% of Christians, let's say, by saying children are a heritage from God? It's not a random thing, and it's not a mistake on Solomon's part, and he's not changing topics. But we need to think about it, don't we? Because the way our worldly hearts tend to think is, if something's a blessing from God, and if he loves me, then I get it. I get the blessing. And if he hasn't chosen in his infinite wisdom to give me that blessing, does he love me? Am I cursed? Solomon puts these two things together so that the first half of this psalm can drive home to each one of us that even the hardest, most painful, perhaps, topic we could conceive of in this life for some, does not drive away the fact that in Christ, nothing in our lives is in vain. Think about what the Bible says about the barren couple. Is the barren couple cursed? 
fellow Christians might leave them thinking so. But does God in Scripture? No. No. Go and read his, his civil law for Israel, for example. Just go read Deuteronomy and see what God thinks about those who are shamefully viewed even by his people too often. The barren, the broken. Are they cursed by God? No, he has a special place for him in his people and in his heart. And often he has proven this by using them to bring about great good for the gospel. No, the barren life in Christ is not in vain, but is in his hands and being used for his glory. More close to many hearts here, what about the single Christian? The single Christian. And, and maybe you, maybe growing up, you longed for that quiver of arrows and, and the husband that came with it <laughs> or, the, or the, the wife. Is that in vain? Is that cursed by God or just ignored? Is there a mistake there? Is he not building your house too? It's a hard thought. And for some of you, I suspect you can never read verses 3 through 5 without having a little temptation about thinking those things. But what would Solomon have you see through all of this? You know, I suspect it's even harder because knowing several of you, although I've never actually asked you, but... I suspect some of it's because you've decided not to mingle with just anyone. You, you've had a very restricted pool to fish in because you love Jesus Christ. And boy, isn't that especially hard? It's out of love for Christ that you don't have many options for love here from another. And that feels cursed, doesn't it? And the world might leave you feeling shamed for that. And fellow Christians might sometimes leave you unintentionally feeling left out or broken. Unintentionally. But it happens. But remember that it is God who is building your house and guarding your house and providing for your security for the future. In Him, none of it is in vain. In fact, excuse me. In fact, two things sat heavy on my heart for you this week. The first was to emphasize to you that in Christ even your moments of extreme loneliness or 
false shame because it is false shame if, if it's there. God is using those for your good to draw you closer to the only man who will never let you down. But then I had a second thought flowing off of Romans there that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. Not only is he working through your singleness for your good, but Jesus Christ is using your singleness to work good for others. Other believers, other Christians, he is using it as an eternal, eternally good thing. A lasting thing, not a vain thing in the lives of others. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this, uh, some of you have been reading a book by a man named Machen. He was one of the the founding uh, founders of Westminster Theological Seminary. And, uh, And some of you will hear about him in our Sunday school class with Bob Godfrey in the fall. He, he came from a fairly well-off family. He, he was doing okay financially. He could have done a, a fair amount of mingling in, in the high society of Philadelphia in his day, which was no small thing. But do you know what he did? He was single. He lived on the campus of Westminster Seminary in, in a little apartment And he did two things with his evenings, none of which was mingling. He he would knock on doors. He would say, there are only two problems with seminary students. They study too much and they don't study enough. So Monday through Fridays, he would go and tap on doors. And he would say, you know, I, I heard that you were struggling with this subject from... Professor Murray told me that you were struggling with this this topic over here. Can I sit down with you and talk about it tonight? And he would give free tutoring on any number of subjects to students in their own rooms. He would seek them out. And then Saturday night would come, and back to his other thing that's wrong with seminary students, they study too much. He would invite them all over to his apartment. And there would be food that they couldn't have afforded, snacks that they couldn't have afforded, and uh, music playing on the radio, and, and he would have the chessboard out. So, see, there's an example of a life not in vain, although without children, although probably often lonely. I suspect he had many lonely moments, but a life not in vain. An entire generation of preachers was influenced by him. Imagine the weight of glory that came from the mouths that were fed on Saturday nights by him. In Christ, even that is not in vain. I could have chosen to pick on some of you with things I know that you do for other believers instead. But I chose someone else. Your life is not in vain, even without that blessing of children. Or, or what about the couple that loses a child? 
If children are a heritage and a blessing from the Lord, what, is it, what do we do with him taking one away? It's a hard thing, too. The world, if they assessed this and were willing to acknowledge that children come from God as a blessing, would surely read that as, you've done something wrong. God is cursing you. Job's friends would have done that, right? What did you do? But even our loss when we lose children is not in vain in the Lord. And although it's surrounded by so many mysteries and things that we can't make absolute statements on here below, even losing a child does not make the life in Christ in vain. One thing that helped me with that thinking this last week was something our Lord once said about death. Remember, he talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then what did he say? God is not a God of the dead, but the living. And it was very obvious there that his point is that those who are in Christ never die, really. That Abraham's God is still this God because Abraham is with God. Again, a lot of mysteries surrounding the death of our children or the death of adult children or the death of spouses or the death of other people whom we love. There's so much surrounding that. Is life in vain? Something was taken before we were ready to let go of it. Is this in vain? Is it a curse from God? He is not the God of the dead, but the living. In Christ, even death is not in vain. But, well, I could, I could try to take us in a number of other directions. But... But I hope this is enough to show why Solomon is pairing all these things. He's giving us a biblical view of children, yes. But he's given it in a context that grounds us. If we're in Christ, with or without children, nothing is in vain. If you don't have Christ, with all the children you might have, it's all in vain. Should this not anchor our very souls? Solomon wants us to be wise. And wisdom sees a God who is in sovereign control. Makes the worst little corner of your life the most painful, bruised spot. The the most shame-filled or embarrassing moment, not in vain. For he is working even that for the eternal weight of glory for you in Christ Jesus. And so we need to be wise with Solomon as as he will say in Ecclesiastes to those who are in complete vanity under the sun, remember your creator in the days of your youth. If you didn't remember him then, 
Remember him in your older age. Remember him. In this rat race where you want to get up early and stay up late and not sleep all night because you're anxious, remember your creator. In the dark moments of the night when you are lonely or when you are stressed out or when you feel poor and helpless, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember him and know that in Christ, nothing is in vain. Four, he is the one who said to Abram long ago and says to you in his word today, I am your very great reward. Do you not have children? He is your very great reward. You have children, and they're exhausting. He it should be your source of great pride and joy. In Christ, you have eternal reward. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Solomon, who, who tried it all out for us. And by your grace by your grace, came back in repentance, able to report to us of the vain life. May we not be as the stubborn donkey that has to be driven or or moved with the bit and the bridle, but may we come with David and Solomon to you to learn wisdom. And in Christ, looking to his salvation and grace alone, may we find we have the purposeful life. May we trust that none of it is vain and that even when we must fall on our knees and repent of grave sin, that even in that moment of repentance, we might know that you are working good for us. And Lord, may we also find great purpose in serving you, knowing that our labor for you is not in vain, For we pray all this in Jesus' name.